Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Alex McIsaac from Northside Ventures. Alex has a rich background spanning venture capital, clean tech, and international investing. And we get Alex to share some of the lessons he learned from his time as a partner at Global Founders Capital, where he navigated the complexities of a global platform while focusing on pre-seed investing across North America. We dig into the reasons Alex thought now was the best time to launch Northside Ventures and what gaps he is hoping to fill in the pre-seed market these days. Lastly, Alex and I cover the future of Canadian AI startups and how we can win in Canada going up against the incumbents. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Alex McIsaac from Northside Ventures. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Alex. Thanks, Matt. Great to join you. You know, Alex, we've known each other for a little bit now, and you've been around the tech and VC space for quite some time. But it'd be great to kick things off with a quick background on yourself and your various roles in and around the VC world over the years before going out and starting your own fund. I went to Queen's for biology and studied neuroscience, which is kind of way different from what I'm doing now. And it really wasn't until my fourth year where I was working in a lab doing research that I realized, you know, that really wasn't my passion and business was much more interesting to me. So I I transferred to Ivy Business School at Western where I studied finance and entrepreneurship. My first job out of school, this is back 2011, when all my friends were going into accounting and investment banking and management consulting, you know, I kind of settled, and I say that with kind of quotes, settled for venture capital, a venture capital job at a $500 million fund in Toronto called Northwater Capital, which was maybe even one of the larger funds in Canada at the time, but was pretty unknown. And it was really there where I got introduced to early stage investing and clean tech specifically. We invested in stuff like fuel cells. Uh, solid state waste heat conversion technologies out of MIT. It was really pretty fascinating and it was a great combination of both business and science. However, it was kind of a year in that I realized investing was great, but I really wanted to build something and I wanted to be an operator. And so we incubated a company out of that VC fund called EnterStore in 2012. Really, we were a tech-enabled developer of energy storage technologies, kind of like what Deep Sky is now for carbon capture, but we were doing it for energy storage over a decade ago. I was really excited about energy storage and clean tech and saw this massive opportunity. In hindsight, it almost feels like we are a little bit ahead of the curve given how hot clean tech is now. But at the end of the day, over a six-year period, we raised about $10 million of venture, $40 million of private equity, $120 million of debt. We sold the core business to Blackstone Energy Partners in 2018. Wow, that's amazing. I remember I was working at RBC at the time, and there was this like first iteration of clean tech investing on the public market side. There was a hedge fund that I covered that was doing all the clean tech renewable energy investing, and it was all solar, and it was a time when like people were really excited about it. And then it totally fizzled out only after a couple of years. You know, but you were on the private side. What kind of business models were you seeing during your time at Northwater that have obviously come back around today? But you know, you thought they would made sense then, but obviously the timing was off that you now think may actually you know, probably work 10, 15 years later. So we saw a lot of uh, different technologies and business models. So the technologies that I was investing in at Northwater, you know, solving a lot of the problems that we are trying to solve today, they were different energy storage technologies, so different types of batteries. You know, you have different technologies that use like flow batteries, uh, you know, where you have very large vats of electrolyte. Uh, We saw very large-scale flywheel technology or underground fuel-free compressed air energy storage technologies, solid-state waste heat conversion. So stick basically a solar panel that's been modified inside an exhaust pipe of a gas plant and recycle the heat in the form of electricity. Really cool stuff. At the end of the day, these technologies take 
know, something I learned was that these technologies are really hard. Hard tech is hard and they take often two times as long and twice as much money. So it is worth, it is definitely a problem that's worth solving, but it requires the right type of investor with the right type of mindset to go after backing those technologies. Yeah, definitely some good lessons learned there. But I'd like to talk about your time at BDC and Global Founders Capital, where you went to afterwards, and how your views kind of changed about backing global founders when you were at Founders versus just Canadian-based companies while you were at BDC. And you know, what were some of the biggest aha moments you saw during your time at Founders that kind of changed your views on investments uh, forever? In 2012, when we started Enterstore, the ecosystem in Canada, the venture ecosystem was pretty you know, young, it was pretty immature. And then as we raised private equity money, it kind of took me out of the venture ecosystem that was growing and that was maturing. And a lot of the funds we know today and a lot of our friends, you know, Golden Ventures, I know VR, you know, those types of funds and, and those those partners there were building those firms. But when you raise private equity, it, it's a different path. When I joined, when we sold the core business at Enterstore to Blackstone, I wanted to get back into the venture ecosystem. This is 2018. There was kind of the first wave of AI, more around prediction and analytics. And there were a lot of really cool things happening. And I wanted to go work with founders and I wanted to be a part of lots of different technologies. And so I joined BDC Capital, which was a great opportunity to get back into the Canadian ecosystem. Obviously, BDC is an incredibly domestic focused fund. They can only invest in Canadian corporations. So moving from BDC to Global Founders Capital or GFC was really quite polarizing. GFC, for context, is a $3 billion AUM fund. It's based in Germany. There are 1,000 portfolio companies around the world with 20 partners. Each partner runs, runs a different country. So we had partners in San Francisco, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Israel, in Jakarta, in Singapore, covering Southeast Asia. So it was really this incredible, truly global network. And a lot of companies, you know, Decacorns, Unicorns, that the firm had backed, like HelloFresh was the first 500K through IPO, Delivery Hero, Revolut, Slack, Canva, Brex, Deal. You know, there's probably over two dozen unicorns across the funds. Just a tremendous amount of learning moving from a domestic mindset to an international mindset. And Global Founders Capital is incredibly founder-focused. And I'd say the number one kind of aha moment for me that I learned was understanding how to assess a founder at the early stage when really nothing else exists and and what to look for, at least for my own opinion around what to look for in terms of an exceptional founder, what type of experience translates well to being a founder and how to compare founders, for example, on not just a domestic playing field, but a global playing field. The other aha moment for me, kind of a big one was GFC had a very competitive, meritocratic culture. Winning was everything. It really taught me how to compete for allocation in a deal. And that's not really something I had to do at Northwater very much because the ecosystem was so young. And BDC has a a bit of a different culture focusing on Canadian startups and, and really more kind of working with founders at an earlier stage through that company formation. GFC was often looking for repeat founders, second-time founders. Often these were hot deals, very competitive deals. And it really kind of turned the table in my head around, you know, I'm not in the position of power here. Capital is more of a commodity. What do I bring to the table? What do I bring to the founder in this company beyond capital? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. You talk about sort of how to compare founders on a global scale. It's kind of like looking at the worst player 
on the all-star team and be like, this is the one of the greatest players and he's one of the worst on the all-star team. But when you look at sort of Canadian founders and only compare them to maybe other Canadian founders, it's not really the game that we're playing here. We have to look on a global scale of comparison if we really want to see those power law outcomes. And I think a lot of times people just get blindsided by the fact that what they are seeing may not be the entire you know, aperture of founders out there that they're going to be competing against one for capital and for market share. You obviously got to see that being at GFC, but you made a lot of high profile investments during your time at, you know, GFC during the last bull cycle and names like Float, you know, Averon, Linden, Autoleap, Rails, Clutch, you know, talk to us about that time and period for yourself as an investor, you know, and how that kind of shaped you as an investor. Now, obviously moving on to running your own fund, given that it was a, sort of the tail end of, the, the last bull market. My time at GFC was formative to me as an investor and how I invest today at Northside. We were generalists and our thesis was that there are great founders building across all categories. And when you're investing so early, two founders and a deck at the point of ideation and company inception, nothing else really matters as much as the founder. We kind of always said that 80% of a company's success is dependent on the founder. The other 10% is probably market timing. The final 10% is everything else. And I truly believe in that. And that's just something that I learned and that I've kept with me into Northside and, and how I invest and work with, decide which founders to work with. And just to be clear, do you have any roles in any of those prior GFC investments at all? Or has it now been handed off to somebody else, right? We handed off the portfolio to one of our other partners to manage. That said, I've built personal relationships. As you know, venture is very much about the founder-investor relationship, and those relationships mean a lot to me. I'm on a text kind of basis with all my founders. Uh, we catch up once or twice a year, at least. I'd say half a dozen of my founders are actually LPs in my fund today. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So, you know, talk to us about what the best founders that you bet on at GFC are doing to continue to be the best founders as the market has moved from underneath them. The best founders were able to stay quite nimble and adjust to market conditions. If you talk to some of the more experienced founders, I think what they would say is that they've never had to change directions so quickly from a mode of growth at all costs to conservative get to profitability. It was such a fast pivot. And this, this was really at the beginning of 22, like really 2022 is kind of when this happened, early 22. And making that pivot and shifting an entire company, especially the more growth-oriented companies with you know 100 employees, it doesn't happen overnight. It's really difficult. So the best founders have been able to do that and they've been able to persevere. I think they've been able to cut costs and get really lean. And many of them have been able to reach profitability in, in the last 12 months or so. And I think the companies that didn't will struggle because they may have already raised an internal round of capital and those wells have run dry to some extent. So I do think we will it's a bit of a negative narrative, but I do think we will see st more companies start to die in the first half of this year. And this year, looking forward, the companies that are profitable will be heavily rewarded. Yeah. I mean, you're only speaking the truth that, you know, even though it may come across as negative, it, it is the truth that companies who weren't fast enough to cut 
and to try and extend runway and may have done an insider round that six months, you know, that they thought they had, you know, in runway last summer is kind of running out the clock now. And so you're going to have to face the music one way or another, unless you move quickly. I think moving on from your time, obviously at GFC, you know, thinking about starting Northside, can you talk to us about what motivated you to start this? You know, how did you go about thinking about your differentiation among all the other firms, you know, kind of out there and sort of how your lessons at BDC and G, uh, GFC all culminate in your starting of Northside Ventures? Over my 13-year career, I've spent about half of it as an operator with a lot of lessons learned and the other half of it at three different institutional funds doing early stage investing. So Northside is really the culmination of all the best things I've accumulated over those 13 years of experience as both an operator and investor. I always felt like at the startup, I wasn't the CEO. I was the first and founding employee. And at the firms, I wasn't the general partner. I was associate principal or partner. I always felt like there were different ways I wanted to do things. And I want to ultimately have autonomy over my decisions that I make, especially when working with a founder. Sometimes you get into situations at different funds where an IC or different partners want to do something and you have to be the bearer of bad news, but it wasn't your decision. I just found that a struggle. It didn't happen too many times, but it certainly did happen. And at Northside, I really want to take full accountability for my decisions and have ownership and build the firm that I wished existed when we were starting Interstore. And I think a lot of founders that I talked to wish existed today, uh, given pre-seed, and I'm talking kind of two founders in a deck, no product, no revenue. I think there's a gap in the market. And that's really the gap I'm trying to fill. I think a lot of founders wish that type of fund existed when they were starting their companies. Right. You know, so talk to us about sort of the strategy and what would be your perfect deal for uh, Northside? And you know, how are you thinking about deploying the capital between you know, first and second checks? The perfect deal for us, and again, we'll look at any great founder who has a connection back to Canada, wherever they are in the world. But if I were to narrow in on a sweet spot, the perfect deal for us is really a first round of capital being raised by a Canadian founder in Canada or US. We see ourselves as really having a front row seat to the Canadian network of founders we're even actually starting to look at a few founders in the MENA region. Uh, we've seen a little bit of a trend of Canadians immigrate to Canada. They get educated here. They work in Canada or the U.S. And now they're actually moving back to, say, Dubai to start a new company. I think that's kind of an interesting trend we're going to keep keep tabs on. But going back to the question, you know, we like to invest in companies very early stage, maximum 12, maybe 18 months old. So really, truly, the point of ideation and inception, we're looking for high-velocity founders who come out with an idea and hit the ground running and are looking for to measure their growth or progress on a daily or weekly basis. And typically we invest 100 to 500K US for typically 1% to 5% ownership. We like to be the first to commit, but we don't have to. If we are, we can help syndicate around. Also, sometimes we come a little bit late. If maybe one of our friends or colleagues brings us into a deal, we can also be really flexible and squeeze in if, if we can get to conviction on a, on a founder in a company. Uh, at the end of a process. And from my understanding, there's no reserves or, or follow-on checks that you're focusing on. It's all first check only. Yeah. You know, I have a, this debate with an, a lot of managers. I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's just different strategies. For my fund, uh, I have a very low reserve, if any, reserve strategy. My objective is to build ownership with my first check-in and then support founders. And this is actually one of the biggest differences between GFC and Northside GFC was a $3 billion 
AUM firm. Our objective was to have the local partner make their early stage investments and build relationships with founders and then have a growth team that sat in London and New York with a different growth mindset and skill set, evaluate the kind of big swing kind of opportunities and leverage the asymmetric information from the seed portfolio to make the two, five, 10, 50, even $100 million check and investments, which just to reiterate, I think is a completely different skill set. And this is why I don't have any reserves. My fundamental belief as an investor is that an investor should do what they do best. I consider myself a great pre-seed investor. That's what I'm going to do best. I've seen it too many times where a pre-seed investor writes a large super pro rata follow-on ticket that doesn't work out and it could wipe out all the great work you did in you know in your pre-seed portfolio. And that's just an unfortunate kind of misalignment of results in terms of you know not aligning properly to your score core skill set. Yeah, I mean, we totally agree and we have a very similar model obviously at Ripple, you know, I always said that you solidify your ownership with your first check, you never grow ownership with a second check. Uh, maybe you maintain it or just, you know, take away a little bit less dilution on your follow-on reserves, but agreed in 2021 you know, we were seeing follow-ons that were 3x their first check for a seed stage or Series A deal, but the the valuations were Series B, Series C. And so you were literally buying no ownership but putting in three times as much capital, increasing your average entry price, and therefore wiping out any potential, you know, winners from your very early pre-seed bets, uh, which is not a good strategy, especially in a down market. You know, what kind of gaps were you seeing that obviously we obviously agree at the pre-seed stage for investing in the Canadian market and obviously Canadian founders abroad that you think we need to have more capital deployed here for? Yeah, it's a great question and something I've thought a lot about. I think the Canadian ecosystem is 10 to 15 years old in, in the kind of version that we see it today. And a lot of the funds in Canada have grown. The emerged managers are on funds four or five. They've gotten bigger. So they're more leading seed rounds. They've gone from kind of pre-seed to seed in many cases, or in some cases they've gone to raise growth funds. And so the 250K checks at into the founder with just an idea don't really move the needle for these larger and successful Canadian funds. What we also see is that a lot of the US funds are typically getting involved north of the border at this seed, late seed or series A stage. And many of the funds in Canada and the managers are focused on kind of more the late seed series A, you know, when you get to 30K MRR type number, really just felt like there was a gap in the pre-seed stage. And having spent time at GFC and being this type of investor and working with a lot of these pre-seed funds in the Valley and New York, for example, really just got to know the model a little bit and learned what to look for and recognize that this wasn't being addressed in Canada. There's obviously a couple funds doing true pre-seed in Canada, but I think you could count them on one hand. And I just think for an entire country of now 40 million people and you know four to eight billion dollars of venture investment each year, uh, that that just wasn't sufficient. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, definitely a gap in the market we believe is there as well. I think pre-seed is obviously an art that a lot of people just don't really think is necessary worth focusing on because the checks you can write are just not large enough for exactly what you said. These larger funds. Uh, just can't really get enough skin in the game. And also the time it takes for a pre-seed to mature to a potential you know, markup uh, or priced equity round is something people don't want to maybe waste time on is a, is a way of saying it. But we don't agree with that. And we do think 
that there is a huge trend towards companies, one, thinking about profitability earlier on, and two, doing more with less, meaning there are ways to build companies now, uh, whether it's you know offshore teams, third-party software that you can integrate to be able to scale, vertical SaaS, obviously a big thing that we focus on. So we agree. I mean, you've got a uh, good background now investing with GFC and also with BDC and, and prior you know investments uh, experience in the clean tech space. So what would you say is your most you know sought after sectors, even though I know you're sector agnostic? You know, what are the industries you're particularly excited about these days? We're generalists by design. I think when you look over time and over cohorts and over decades, more specifically, it's actually the generalist funds that outperform the specialist funds. In a short-term view, the specialists may outperform because there's often hot categories that drive pretty significant returns. That trend is really interesting to me and something that I take to heart because what does it say? It tells you that the best investors are able to look for a common thread over multiple decades and that they're able to adjust to the categories where, where new technology is being developed that will form the future in which we live. That's how I see it. And I believe that common thread, especially at the early stage, is the founder and the, and the team and are they exceptional? Uh, and so my thesis is to be a generalist fund that backs founders building in categories with multi-decade tailwinds. So right now I'm spending a lot of time on B2B SaaS, AI, which I'm finding is just really quite horizontal and, and taking a pretty significant role in, in almost all SaaS. FinTech is still pretty interesting to me. Obviously, there's some kind of hot and cold areas within FinTech. And then CleanTech, of course, is, is kind of the fourth large pillar that I focus on right now. You know, given what you said in the earlier part of the conversation about how, you know, things take twice as long, things take five times as much capital kind of thing in clean tech. Do you think that still holds today? And do you think funds of your stage and size uh, should be making clean tech investments? To kind of generalize, I see clean tech in two categories. There's kind of hardware and software. There are certainly opportunities in both. For my fund, I'm particularly focused on asset light clean tech companies. So I invested in a company called Veritree, which is doing kind of like a embedded fintech tree planting as a service for corporations with a measurement and verification software layer, which is doing exceptionally well, but there's no hard assets at the company. Hardware is where the big impact in the world will be made in, in many cases. I do think it will take twice as long and cost twice as much. And so for a pre-seed investor like myself, hardware and clean tech is more difficult for a fund like mine to make. There are other larger funds that have raised their fund on the premise that they will be a 15-year fund life because they're going to go after this. And so there's alignment with their LPs on, on those types of opportunities. I probably won't do too many deals in the pre-seed hardware clean tech space. I'll be focusing more on asset light business models. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I totally agree. You know, speaking of founders, you obviously say you invest in two founders in a pitch deck. Besides the capital that you can provide at the earliest stages, what would you say the biggest value is that you add to those founders early on when they need so much help to get out of Death Valley? So to answer this question, I'll add a little context to how I think about founders and which founders I like to invest in. I focus on typically a more experienced founder that could be a second time founder that started a company. It could have sold for a hundred million. It could have raised, got to two billion. 
but it could have also flamed out at, at seed or series A. It could also be a PL leader at a big tech company or someone that was at, say, Uber or a unicorn company for a period of like three or four years. At the end of the day, the common thread that I'm looking for is, has this founder experienced scale? Have they seen greatness in some form? And have they helped be a part of the journey in solving hard problems to get to that endpoint? And then on top of that, do they have some sort of unique insight from that experience that makes them the best founder to start the company that they're building today? And are they ambitious and have the grit and resilience to go build a unicorn? So it's really a quite specific thesis around the founder that I look for. This aligns with how I invested at GFC. And so the value add, coming back to the question, the value add strategy that I've designed is specifically focused on that type of founder. So it's not the type of founder that's looking you know, to learn how to hire their first dev or to build out a, a team of BDRs. Typically, the founders I'm investing have a lot of that experience. Based on feedback from these founders, you know, the 40 founders I've invested in over the last you know, five years, the things that these founders value the most are what I kind of call a high-value, light-touch approach to value-add. And so specifically what that is, is making investor introductions to help the founder fund their company, making customer introductions to help them grow their, their revenue and their unit economics, and then be there for that founder as a sounding board for advice really anytime, but primarily for those two to three key decision, difficult decisions that they'll have to make each year. So between the investor customer intros and the sounding board, I've been able to build great relationships with my founders, again, to the point where many of them have come back and become LPs in my fund. I've actually had some founders that I didn't invest in and I passed on, but was still able to help them out. And then they also came in as LPs into the fund, which I think is a testament to that strategy working. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge compliment to have founders, not only that you invest in, support you as an LP, but also ones that you've passed on still support you as an LP. You know, speaking of sounding boards uh, for advice, are you taking any board seats in any of the companies you're investing in? By design, I don't take board seats or observer seats. It's really, for me, especially at the pre-seat stage, about building that relationship directly with a founder one-to-one. So I text all my founders, you know, we, we're on WhatsApp or iMessage. We have some, some founders, we have recurring calls. At the end of the day, I want that founder to know that they can call me anytime, any time of day, any day of the week, month of the year, not have to wait three months for a quarterly board meeting to ask me a question. I think at the precinct stage, especially when often boards haven't been formed, that's the best way in my view to build a relationship. Yep. No, totally understand. At this stage, pre-seed, I don't think boards are a necessity, but more just the constant communication and advice being, you know, given both sides. You know, sp- flipping gears a little bit on the LP side, you know, you announced you were trying to raise a $15 million first fund. Uh, you know, question, you know, how did you go about the fundraising process? You know, how are you trying to engage LPs to support you, given the obviously challenging market we're facing here for all VC funds raising capital now? Talk to us about the you know the process and and what you kind of did to sort of move the needle forward. Given the market and some self awareness and frankly mentorship that I received, I had to recognize that yes, I've have experience as an operator. Yes, I've worked at three different funds and I've built a track record, thirty plus companies, and it was a pretty good track record. Fifteen of those have raised Series A's, five have raised Series B's now, but I'm still a first-time manager. I'm what's considered an emerging manager 
we both are, if you're funds one, two, or three, you're still emerging. Most of the funds and managers in Canada, by that definition, are still emerging. LPs, especially the institutional LPs, have a different way to look at emerging managers and an even kind of more different way to look at fund one emerging managers. And so I made the conscious decision, tying all that together, to raise from LPs like high net worth individuals, founders who have had some success, VC funds with fund-to-fund allocation, and single-family offices. What I didn't do was I didn't try and secure an anchor LP first, which is another strategy that many have uh, used and, and, and works if you can do that. But the risk is that you that might take a year or so to do. And while you're working with one or a couple potential anchor investors, you're out of market. That said, you know, I was able to secure intact insurance as my largest LP, which is considered, I would say, an institutional investor and couldn't be happier to have them on board. But what the strategy ended up allowing me to do was I had a first close six weeks after I left GFC. So I left in December, end of the year, December 22, and my first close was February 15th. I closed on one third of the fund and I brought in a lot of people within my kind of inner circle that would back me for who I am and, and knew me. And I didn't really have to pitch a ton uh, because they they knew my track record. I'd co-invested with them. They'd known me for many years. And that allowed me to start investing immediately uh, in 2023 and just get in market. At the end of the day, you know, when I stand back and look at my fundraising approach over the last 12 months, we're just coming up on my kind of one-year fund anniversary in two days here. My strategy is one that I'm happy with. The way I describe it is I, I viewed it as a series of concentric circles. I started with the innermost circle, people that knew me, like I described, and I moved to the second circle, which was maybe people that I didn't know as well, but maybe I'd done a co-investment with, but still had a direct relationship with. And the third concentric circle, that outer circle, is people that I needed a warm intro to reach, which was leveraging circles one and two to get introduced to that outer circle. And I think that strategy has worked pretty well. I've now closed uh, just about two-thirds of my fund, and I've made nine investments, and kind of firing all cylinders here. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. First off, congratulations, you know, on securing uh, Intact and also all the other family offices that you've been working with. You know, the self-awareness that me and you have spoken about offline is just is just getting started, right? Like not waiting for that gun to go off. It's sort of firing the gun yourself and just starting to get working in market, making investments uh, and doing a rolling close to keep yourself motivated and also showing progress as you continue to build relationships. You know, speaking of building relationships, what kind of networking or events, you know, that you did work for you to build your network for maybe people that you weren't directly connected to, but through second and third degree connections, you were able to get in front of that worked for you for fundraising on fund one that maybe other emerging managers would learn from. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the game is just starting and I feel like I'm, I'm still at the starting line and, and there's so much to learn, but I feel like what I've learned in the last year you know, is kind of 5X where I w- would have learned anywhere else. And now a lot of emerging managers that are thinking about staying out of their funds or, or their companies and starting their own fund are reaching out and asking for advice. And I'd say just, you know, as a, as a sidebar, if there are any emerging managers out there that do uh, want advice, I'm happy to chat. You can reach out. A couple pieces of advice that that I had was uh, get in market, start investing. You can warehouse deals, start building relationships with founders that are really core to your fund's thesis. The number one rule is with LPs is do what you say you're going to do and build trust. And there's two other points I'll make here. 
the institutional LPs want to track you for two or three years, at least. One of the things you can do to save yourself a couple of years is touch base with all of them right when you start fundraising and add them to your quarterly letters so that they can track your progress and be upfront and say, I know you're not going to invest now. Hopefully we can have a relationship on my fund two or my fund three, which could be in three to six years, but I'd love to start building a relationship with you today and add them to your, in, you know, your update, add, you know, invite them to your events and start building a relationship, allow that LP to get inside your head as a manager. So that's something I've done with as many institutional LPs in the U S and Canada as, you know, as, as I can and, and continue to do that. Uh, I'm building those relationships over time. To your question specifically about events, I love events. I'm an event person. I'm not huge on social media. I love in-person relationships and networking. And so I'm constantly thinking about new creative uh, event ideas to bring like-minded people together, whether that's around exited founders to convey messages to founders that are currently building. And so I did an event with uh, Kirk Simpson and Alan Lau and Homer Varma, three exited very successful Canadian founders and 40 founders in the ecosystem. Some of my portfolio founders, but other founders that I'm talking to and just really anyone that I felt would be interested. And we had a great evening together under kind of Chatham House rules, just sharing learnings that, you know, that these founders wish they knew when they were building, but no one was there to tell them. So that was one example. The other example I'll share is I do a series of, I call them kind of like my Northside dinners. I do a dinner series which are usually kind of like 12 to 16 people, largely LPs, largely a mix of existing LPs, potential LPs, and really just trying to find, finding the uncommon commonality among a small crowd of 12 to 16 people to bring people together and have a flowing, energetic conversation. You know, I really enjoy those dinners and uh, we'll keep doing those going forward. Absolutely. I think, you know, those are some of the most impactful moments you get to build relationships. And obviously something we do a lot at Ripple with 20 plus events every year. You know, my partner Dom is doing bas basketball every week in Vancouver now. I've been following. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what yeah, Dom's been doing it's, out last. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Can't to wait see. to visit. Yeah. It's a crazy ecosystem out there that's still just getting built from the beginning. You know, uh, it's interesting what you were saying about sort of keeping the institutional investors up to date on your progress. You know, Yes, it could take two to three years, but it, it can also take two to three fund cycles. What you're doing at Fund One, keeping them up to date, is something that all emerging managers need to be cognizant of. You know, how are you physically uh, managing your tech stack? Like, what are your tools uh, for your CRM, for your you know newsletters, for your portfolio tracking that maybe other emerging managers listening could benefit from? Yeah, so I invested in uh, a good CRM. I use Affinity. You know, it's an expensive software kind of platform, especially for a solo GP emerging manager. That said, I think it is high quality. It's made for VCs. It's what I use at GFC. It's what I'm familiar with. And we just given the amount of time that we spend in it. You know, I think that's really important. I really like productivity as a solo GP. I'm obsessed with my calendar. I time box everything. So every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes of my entire week is time boxed. I use Calendly obsessively and I have different Calendly's for founder meetings and different ones for LP meetings and different ones for VC networking meetings. And I try and optimize the hours per meeting spent per day. Uh, and I measure everything. And so I'm just really obsessive about productivity, like self productivity metrics. And I try and 
toggle up or down depending on which phase I may be in. For example, if I'm in the final stages of a fundraising sprint, you know, I'm definitely going to shift a little bit more to the LP uh, meetings than, say, VC catch-ups. What I try and always do is I, I speak with two to four, two to five founders every day. And I always do that in the afternoons. I've got a lot of that automated now, uh, which saves me a ton of time. What about funded mint? Did you have to uh, get that to get sort of your first close done or did you do it all yourself? So I've built my service stack like an institutional fund or as close to as I can afford, I'll say. I use Pinnacle Fund Services, who does about 100 months in Canada. I use MNP as my auditor because I do have a couple institutional LPs. I do need to do an audit and the team there has been great. And I use RBCX uh, for my fund banking. Really trying to build the service stack that I can scale this on top of without having to change service providers. And I should also mention I use Osler for my fund formation. They've been fantastic. Yeah, exactly the way we set up for first fund. We have Aduro and Affinity and, you know, same thing for Goodman's and, and stuff like that. So Great, uh, great call on that. You know, talk about some success you've seen. I know it's early, obviously, in a lot of your companies already, and I'm sure some of them are in stealth still, but can you share any early successes from the fund uh, in the current portfolio that our listeners should be aware of? I could share. So I made nine investments to date. As you said, most are still in stealth. The one I can share that's announced their round uh, is a company called Terminal, who's building the plaid for telematics data. I met these founders at a... Uh, one of my LPs is Bain Capital from the team there is in San Francisco. They were hosting a founder event with some of their GPs here in Toronto. I met the founders who went to Ivy a couple of years after me uh, at that event. We got to chatting, really liked the guys. They had worked at North One, Battery Ventures back, Series B, FinTech Startup. Both their families came from the industry in terms of fleet and logistics. And so there was kind of this great founder market fit, founder product fit. And it was the right stage. They were just in this early stage of ideating. They had actually applied to YC and they went to cancel our first call because they just got it. And I said, well, let, let, let's still have a chat. You know, I've, I've invested a lot of times like before YC. Uh, and so I ended up built, you know, talking with them, building conviction over kind of 24 to 48 hours, did a flurry of reference calls. The references came back kind of glowing, both on industry opportunity and the founders themselves and made them a commitment kind of 48 hours later. So I was the first fund to invest. Yuri from Wayfinder came in as well, all pre-YC. And then I think they had about 100 venture uh, investor meetings uh, leading up to demo day. And and our friends over at Golden ended up leading that round. And so led the seed round and that they announced it, I think, last month or so. Yeah, very exciting. You know, we have investments in the telematic space with a company called Pitstop which is our fund one company. And then we also have investments in the fleet and logistics space with companies like uh, Rose Rocket and Tread. Very exciting space. You know, how did the MFN, Most Favored Nation Clause, factor into the decision for the company to take a pre-YC demo day investment versus post? Because I know that's been a topic for a lot of YC uh, founders recently. The MFN kicks in on a certain date. So we are able to invest prior to the MFN kicking in. I don't think it's much more complicated than that. I think the only thing I would say is it's important for founders to be aware of that date and manage dilution accordingly. Because if you have the YC check kicking in at, say, a lower cap, they're going to get diluted a lot more. Just make sure that either you're calculating it or you're working with your counsel to kind of make sure your cap table is, is kind of spot on, on in terms of listing out your safes on an as-converted basis. 
That's a great advice. Definitely something we make them aware of as well. You obviously are picking up on a lot of good trends here uh, and certain archetypes of founders that you're looking to back. What kind of predictions would you have for the Canadian AI startup landscape over the next few years? As I know that you were you know, recently at the, uh, I think Vector Institute hosted an event with uh, Jeffrey Hinton. I think Jensing was there from NVIDIA. So what kind of things are you excited about from the Canadian AI landscape? Look, I think Canada is really well positioned to be a major player in AI. It's important to be aware of where we sit and which way we're trending. I don't know how much value you put in rankings, but I think maybe five years ago, we were probably ranked as like the third market. That's actually fallen to the fifth uh, place in terms of AI markets. So it points to a couple broader kind of more macro trends around, I think, productivity and salary gaps that still exist. Where we're going forward, we're well positioned to gain those positions back if we make the right moves. I think we need to incent people to stay here. I think remote work can help keep high quality people here. I think people are moving back. You know, people who are 10 years, 15 years out of their career and got experience in the Valley are moving back to Canada you know, to some extent to start families here, be closer to kind of grandparents and things like that. So we need to leverage those types of trends. I think immigration and our immigration policy is interesting. If we've got some bigger problems here at home and we don't have to solve all the problems, but you know, housing costs and costs in Toronto are really high. And so where are these people going to move? Maybe it's Waterloo. I think there's a tremendous opportunity in Waterloo. Love spending time there and investing there as well. I'm optimistic about the, ten, the next 10 years. I think the Canadian venture market is at an inflection point where we're starting a new economic cycle. We have more emerging managers entering the market, like myself. I could think of another 12 managers that have started funds in the last two years. So I think there's more capital going into the early stage. Remote work post-COVID has enabled international capital or U.S. funds to invest more here as well that helps fill the gap. Ultimately, the next 10 years are going to have more outcomes and larger outcomes than the last 10 years. And I think AI is going to be entrenched across all SaaS going forward. And so I think the biggest challenge right now is really just around how to differentiate and how to pick in, a, in what's becoming a pretty crowded market, at least when looking at the software application layer, which is where most SaaS sits. I think what myself and a lot of VCs are just spending time on is how to, how to pick the winners or the out, potential outliers outside of kind of an increasingly saturated uh, SaaS AI, AI space. Yeah, I want to double click on that for a second because as a emerging manager, you know, making investments uh, with a first fund, there is this sort of gun shy mindset that a lot of first time founders have, especially with these, you know, AI wrapper companies. You know, there's this huge uh, conversation happening around sort of will the incumbents just use their platform and their network to release all these different kind of features uh, that individual startups are trying to sell right now and they'll fizzle out within the next year or two because. OpenAI or Microsoft or Google just release this or the open source, you know, networks are going to be able to take over and offer this for free. You know, how are you thinking about not getting caught in that trap when looking at these AI investments? Because I know it's something a lot of uh, managers are struggling with right now. It's super difficult. You know, I measure the num the stats of AI companies that we talked to. I think in the last quarter, 60% of all startups we spoke to were kind of considered AI first companies. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about this. At the end of the day, what I come back to and how I'm approaching it is I come back to the founder and the founding team specifically. And 
does this, the question I ask is, does this founder have, if they're building in the software application layer, you know, it's likely that someone else could build the same technology as them. Does the founder have some sort of edge in terms of distribution? And it ties back to their experience. What did this founder do before? Are they the best founder in the world to build this company because of that experience? And if they were at Shopify and they're building an AI company that's selling to shop, Shopify merchants, can they access those merchants better than any other founder because they know the Shopify app ecosystem because they built it for the last 10 years, for example? Or you know, does this person know I invested in a founder whose previous company scaled to 30 million ARR and he exited at about a half billion valuation and he has 300 customers that he sold to and he had an aha moment when he saw AI and said, hey, I know what those 300 customers want to buy. These are non-tech companies. I'm going to go build the, soft, the AI software that I can sell to those 300 customers because I have all 300 decision makers on my email contact list because I worked with them for 10 years. It's a combination of a distribution advantage, good tech, solid tech, but also speed to market and how how hungry are those founders willing to move? And it comes back to kind of like a high velocity think, way of thinking. Yeah, it sounds like you're really just betting on the surfer and they're going to be able to navigate whatever way the waves come or go and whatever bumps come in the road. If the market swips you know, out from underneath them even quickly within the first year, they're going to be able to pivot and navigate quickly to get ahead of that next wave. So that makes sense. You know, what's your vision for Northside? Looking ahead, you know, what's the long-term vision? You say we, but I believe it's just you as a solo GP. And what kind of, you know, impact will you hope to have on the Canadian tech ecosystem looking back 10, 20 years from here? I say we because, yes, I'm a solo GP. I have a team of two analysts that work with me and kind of a shout out to the IV Venture Capital Club. I've had great success hiring my analyst interns from IVCC, and it was actually founded by two of my interns at GFC a couple of years ago. And so it's a good group of kind of 200 plus really hungry third and fourth year uh, IV students. I actually hired a Queen student who was in the IVCC somehow. He stuck in there, but really great experience there. So we are a team of three. And I think in terms of the long-term vision at Northside, it's to be a leading early stage venture capital firm, not just in Canada, but in North America. I want to play a significant role helping Canada produce a Shopify every year instead of every 20 years. And if I've done my job well, I hope to retire when I'm on Northside Fund 10 and I can leave behind a legacy of success. Totally agree. You know, this is something you and I both signed up for for the next 20 to 25 years, not the next just two years. So let's see each other in the next 20 years and hopefully we'll look just as young. But before we wrap things up, we always move on to our fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Other than Tank Talks, of course, lately I've been loving the 10X Capital podcast with David Weisberg. I found it just super relevant for emerging managers. And I love kind of this open LP movement around sharing more information about emerging managers and LPs. Yeah, very insightful and, and very on point for a lot of the things you and I both are, are asking questions on and now getting answers to, which is great. Uh, next is your favorite newsletter or blog. I follow tech meme pretty daily. I find it's just like a super concise uh, way to get tech news that's that's unbiased. And that's a great one. Next is your favorite tech gadget. So I use the Aura Ring and I kind of follow my sleep score, but I've got two kids, both under two at home uh, these days. So I've actually been loving the Nanit baby camera. Yeah, we have one for each of our kids. We've got two and a half and a six months. So similar there to you. Go. We're in the same club. Hopefully you have a little bit more sleep than I do, but we'll see. Next is your favorite new trend. So I'm a big advocate for mental health and awareness. I chaired CAMH 
KMH's Young Professional Board for eight years. We raised over a million dollars in the last decade. I'm just really excited that there's more awareness going to mental health and addiction issues. But I think what that's done is it's kicked the can down the road. And so now there's a need for more solutions now that more people are aware of the issues that happen. So uh, we'll continue to support that cause uh, going forward. That's great to hear. Next is your favorite book. Uh, Red Notice, Bill Browder. I love nonfiction and I just, that's one book I just could not put down. I think I read it in like a few hours. Yeah, I love that book. I got it a long time ago. Uh, I wonder if Tucker Carlson read it before he interviewed Putin. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, your favorite life lesson. One of the lessons that I really try and live by is you know, we live in a marketplace of favors. Be generous with your time to as many people as possible because you never know how those favors or those people may come back to help you out. And kind of another cliche, you know, your network's your net worth, right? And so just everything you can do to be generous with your time and help people out along your journey, I think you'll go farther. Yeah. It's like I say, the people you see on the way up are the same people you see on the way down. So great advice. And thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Alex McIsaac from Northside Ventures. Thanks, Matt. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.